RA Exchange. Welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Chloe Lula, the Exchange's senior producer. As you might be able to hear, I have slightly lost my voice, but thanks for bearing with me. On this week's episode, I had the great privilege of speaking with Ben Frost, a multidisciplinary composer whose work extends from solo releases to installation work in TV, video game and movie soundtracks, and most notably, the Netflix show Dark and its spin-off, 1899. Ben grew up in Australia, but he's been based in Reykjavik since 2005. While his formal studies were in visual art, he started experimenting with music making from an early age, homing in on a unique sound that is truly a mixture of his influences in punk, black metal, classical, and modern minimalism. His unique approach to composition has led him to some extreme places to capture field recordings, like the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the Amazon rainforest, and the empty hulls of fishing boats docked on the banks of Icelandic port towns. Artists like Steve Albini, Bjork, Brian Eno, and the band Swans have tapped Ben to work with them, and he's performed extensively as a solo performer and as part of an AV outfit at the world's biggest festivals and art world circuits. While he was in town to play CTM Festival, we sat down and talked about his forthcoming full-length on mute called Scope Neglect, which is out tomorrow, March 1st. It pulls heavily from his proclivity for guitar music and metal, but it still nods to the cinematic minimalism that has become one of his work's primary tropes. Ben and I chatted about some of the recording techniques he used to make the record. He borrowed heavily from the methods used by Mark Collis from the band Talk Talk as well as his studio practice, his love of opera, and how he approaches writing scores. He also told me about how he spends his free time, which includes watching his favorite TV show, Frasier. Actually, at this point in time, I do recognize the idea that in order to kind of make the thing that fucking flaps, it like sometimes does require lying on the sofa, eating cereal, watching yeah. Frasier for three days, you know? It was such an immense pleasure to speak with Ben about art making, being involved in the movie production process, and the myriad ways in which he explores recording, composition, and multidisciplinary art making beyond the confines of a dance floor. Thanks so much for tuning in. You might hear some very slight background noise on Ben's voice as we had some small issues with our microphone connection during the time of recording, but I guarantee that it's worth the listen nonetheless. Without further ado, here is the one and only Ben Frost. Welcome to the exchange, Ben Frost. Thank you. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. Yeah. Uh, you performed at CTM over the weekend, right? How did that go? It was fun. Yeah, it was. It was a lot of fun. Mostly a lot of sense of relief. You know, apart from being a new show, the hustle of the the kind of the machinations of a new show, new music and new people and all that stuff, that, like it's technologically kind of, there's a lot of bunks that needed to be ironed out. And I think we're, we're sort of on the upswing now, so. I apologize, I was not there <laughs> because I had to travel this weekend, but was it your first time performing this iteration of, of the show? Uh, no, we, I did a couple of kind of, you know, um, let's call them research shows okay. in, um, in October, but yeah, these, these ones, it, it felt like these, these were definitely the first ones where it felt like, okay, I, I can see what this is now, you know? Well, I know there was a really big visual component to it. And could you talk about that a little bit? Because I know you were working with a visual artist. I'm working with uh, a really incredible visual artist who's actually from, well, based in Berlin. Um, his name is Tarek Bari. We met many years ago, actually. Um, and I've been a huge fan of his work for a long time. And, and we sort of started a conversation. The initial conversation I, I sort of had with him was, was more about lighting 
and less to do with sort of video, I suppose. And I think we just kind of found each other at the right moment because I think that's sort of, it's this sort of juncture between light and video that sort of is really where his interests lie. I think the two of us are in our own ways very interested in in sort of bridging the space between the visual and the the you know the oral experience but also just on a really practical sort of tech you know, technological level i mean he's he's running for example he's running his entire sort of show also from Abel's alive which is kind of a, a pretty wild step so it wasn't like a traditional lights and music show it was like a no 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 it's there's a, a lot of different layers of connection okay um, and sort of you know pretty complex connections in that the the way sound and, and image are kind of talking to one another yeah this it's it's sort of it's multi-layered but at the same time not scripted so it's the sort of open improvisations so cool okay i think and i had assumed that you were performing <clears throat> your new album scope neglect is that what you were performing or was it kind of an iteration of the material for the album look it's definitely like using that material as okay. kind of the departure point already rapidly sort of becoming its own thing you know collaborating with people it's is always you know exciting but like what that combination is going to be. I mean, I've never really been interested in in that thing where you just have people play play it as written or something. Um, my approach to collaboration has always been sort of about the whole person, not just about their ability to play yeah. a certain part, something. So, you know, bringing in this guitarist, Greg Kabaki, you know, I, I'd never read before. You have no previous relationship. Um, so it was a brand new collaboration and just, you know, just learning about one another as humans is as much a part of it as, you know, the chords. Yeah. You do a lot of collaborations and I want to get into that, but I know that in writing your new album, which is coming out on mute, uh, you collaborated with an engineer who works in a studio in Tempelhof, right? And you experimented with a lot of different recording techniques. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So I, I worked in uh, a studio here in Berlin called Candy Bomber. And yeah, it's, it, it's in Tempelhof Airport. The man behind that studio is uh, a, an amazing character called Hiko Kraus, who I was introduced to through Swans, working on the, the Swans records. So the last three or four Swans records have all sort of been through his hands. And, and through that room and, you know, I spent quite a bit of time in there and it just occurred to me that the kind of record I was wanting to make, it just felt like he was the right person. He has a, a really unique set of ears and he has a very interesting sort of patience that he has with music that I find interesting. He was the first person I kind of thought of to bring in as a collaborator to kind of to capture the thing. And I felt that uh, it'd also just be fun to, you know, to work with him in in that context as opposed to, to in as a part of Swans. It's interesting because I don't think very many people work with recording studio engineers in a traditional sense mm -hmm. so much anymore. Is that like a typical practice for you or is that new for this well, project? Yeah, I, I think that's right that you, I think one of the unfortunate kind of byproducts of the digital kind of age of, of music production is that, you know, whilst I think myself and, and many other musicians like me have benefited hugely from the ability to be able to do things on our own and to be self-sufficient at a level of, you know, quality or, or, or something that, that is sort of not requiring the budgets of the 1980s record production. Yeah, one of the kind of effects of that has been that there's a there's a vast pool of knowledge embodied in somebody like Ingo, who's who's been working in that environment since, you know, the eighties. Like they were they were there and went through that whole sort of transition. And there's a wealth of experience there that is I think 
particularly in regards to maybe the more sort of producer side of music production, you know, like people that were working with computers and making computer music, you know, unless you're in a punk band or, or something, you, you probably not necessarily going to interact with, with that world in the way that you would have had to or needed to 20, 30 years ago. And so it occurs to me that all of that exists. Like I really want to sort of make the use of that. I think the presence of a, of a mind like him or, or someone like Steve Albini, who I worked with on the last record, being in a space with, with those people, it's a hugely valuable resource. And I've learned so much. Yeah. I think when you're an artist, it can sometimes feel very difficult when you're so close to the creative process that it is, it's so, it's really valuable to have somebody who's outside who can kind of direct a little bit and bring their own specific insight. But I know you worked with some recording methods used by Mark Hollis from Talk Talk. What were those? Yeah. So Mark Hollis, um, yeah, the lead singer of Talk Talk, they made a, a some recordings in the, the late eighties and early nineties, uh, with a record producer called Phil Brown, British engineer. Those recording sessions have a, a particular resonance with me and, and a lot of, you know, a lot of my friends, they're quite unusual recordings in that on one level, the two talk talk records, the last two spirit of Eden and, and laughing stuff have, uh, kind of a bit of a cult following among many musicians. Spirit of Eden is one of my favorite albums of all time. So <laughs> as, as it should be, mine too. Um, but the, the, the technical aspect of it that you're sort of referring to is that Mark and Phil were, were bringing in uh, musicians, improvising musicians and bringing them into a situation and playing for them sort of the beginnings of the, of, a, of the song, but very deliberately and methodically playing only aspects of the track to them. So they're in the studio, harmonica player or trumpet player, whatever, putting them in headphones and only feeding them certain parts of the arrangement. So then so maybe during the take, they're only hearing 20% of what's actually there, but then asking them to respond to that as though that were the whole thing. And of course, then they take that recording and then they reset the whole sing and then make a new arrangement of a different set of elements and have the musicians respond to that. Yeah. And so then you're, you're building up these takes from the same musician, the same performer, um, and, and sort of building up this, this little layer cake of, uh, of phrases and, and, and improvisations to, to the underlying music. And then saying, thank you very much, sending them away. And then, over you know months and weeks and really sort of methodically going through all of that and choosing choosing different parts of each take and stitching them together as though as though they're one and so you get this very strange result where in something that feels very much improvised also has a strange sort of uh, flow to it wherein there are melodies and harmonies being created that actually were not intended. They're, they're sort of constructed. And that really resonates with me in that, that it's kind of taking things that are not in and of themselves by design, but sort of making, making design with them in a penalty. That's really interesting. Have you done that before in a recording process? Or? I mean, I think in some ways I've always kind of done that, but, I could, but with this it definitely felt more deliberate for sure. Last night, actually, I watched this documentary called American Symphony about John Batiste, but he wrote this piece called American Symphony to be played at Carnegie Hall, but it, it used kind of a similar methodology where there are all these different parts written that were improvised and like a huge part of the live performance was just him improvising on the piano and he had people uh, playing from different like indigenous groups and playing their own music, but it wasn't really notated and yeah. Fascinating yeah. approach. You use a lot of really different approaches in your compositional style, and I wanted to talk about that a little bit, pivoting a bit into your soundtrack and scoring work. 
You have created original soundtracks for some very impressive productions. The Netflix series Dark and its spinoff series 1899. I guess it was one season, not really a series. <laughs> and then you also wrote the score for the movie Sleeping Beauty and I think at least five more films and TV series. I mean, quite, quite a lot. So in the score for 1899, I read that you fed the soundtrack that you wrote through the empty hull of a boat and re-recorded those sounds just to create a kind of reverb chamber. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I, um, the nature of that score was, you know, the conversations began very early with the director and myself about the kind of score that he sort of wanted for this and that I, I, I definitely agreed, which was this thing that was really sort of pushing back against, because the, the, the way that 1899 looks um, is that it's, a, it's ostensibly a period drought. It, it looks like Titanic, you know, it has people in period clothing and they're stuck on this boat and yeah, it's this big sort of immigrant mix, multilingual, multi-layered sort of ecosystem. And Bo was, the director was was regularly sort of referencing the score for, for Akira, which I'm a huge fan of as well. And he, he loved that score and he was like, this is kind of how I imagine this thing. And what I sort of pointed out to him, which I found fascinating was that I think part of it was a reason he was so drawn to that idea was actually in the production of that score, wherein it was sort of a pre-internet multicultural collaboration where, you know, files were being exchanged literally by mail <laughs> and all sort of being pulled in from different parts of the world and assembled in Japan, sort of building this, this thing where you're sort of throwing all of these different influences and, and styles and music into a, a sort of a, a melting pot as it were. And I think that, you know, on the back of that conversation, we sort of, it, it became very clear to me that I wanted to do something that kind of was, was pulling on that same thread and going around and sort of almost a sort of Alan Lundmax sort of approach, like really going and, and, and meeting people on their terms, you know, um, uh, worked with an amazing Irish folk singer. I uh, worked with a traditional singer from Crete, Chinese percussion ensemble, just kind of pulling in all these different elements and trying not to plan too much how that would fit together, just knowing that by by kind of coalescing all that stuff into one space, that it would take us somewhere new and, and strange. And so once I had all of that there, I think one of the things that I was struggling a little bit with was this feeling that because of all of these different spaces that I'd recorded everything in, different studios, different microphones, different, there was, it was missing a little bit of this feeling of like a unifying thread through it. And so it occurred to me that there was an interesting experiment to be done there. And where I live in Reykjavik, there is a, the weather is incredibly harsh on the, the fishing industry. The boats need to be, you know, refurbished every year. They, they bring them up onto the dock, do a dry dock, drain them, strip all the paint off, and, you know, and sort of refurbish these boats. And so there's this constant stream of massive fishing vessels, which are, you know, being, being dealt with. And so I, I went down and spoke to the dock master and sort of asked him, I said, well, look, these things have a massive tank, you know, like a ballast, ballast of boats. Could I get inside one of these states and, and, you know, and play music in it? And being isomers, these conversations are, it's, it's a really easy thing to kind of, it's a strange request, but I mean, as soon as I sort of explained it to, to the Doff master, he, he was right into it and, and basically just gave me the keys to the castle. And so I started sort of taking, um, taking elements from the score, you know, stems that I've recorded elsewhere and taking, you know, Bluetooth speakers, just basic speakers and, and sort of placing them inside parts of the boat and then 
recording them, like making field recordings of those elements within the ship. And of course, the ship is being worked on at the same time. So then, you know, you have this, these sounds, which are some of them quite pristine and now being blasted through these really dark sort of hugely resonant spaces. And there's some guy upstairs with an angle grinder, you know, <laughs> fixing part of the book and all of that starts to interact, which to me really spoke to the story in a way. Um, it's very frenetic. And without spoiling it too much, I mean, there is a, there is a sort of another layer of reality that is, is sort of being dealt with in that, mm. in that storyline. And so this idea that there was a, this sort of, uh, yeah, this sort of pristine music was, was somehow being, you know, absorbed by an unseen outer world somehow spoke to me. Well, so on the flip side of that score is your score for its predecessor, Dark, which is a lot slower. It employs more moments of silence. Um, and you said you're often the one in the room fighting for the absence of sound because it will give the bigger punch. I totally agree with you. And I find that that's not something that I see as frequently in scores these days. It seems like everything's moving really quickly. Um, can you just speak a little bit more to like the power that um, yeah, slowness and silence plays in your compositions? I, again, I think, you know, pulling back to the technological sort of underpinnings of a lot of creative decision-making, I think that, you know, again, maybe a slightly unfortunate offshoot of the revolution of, of digital filmmaking has been that there's, a, there's an ease with which one can marry music and image uh, in an edit, you know. The second that you've shot a film, you can load it into an editing software and drag in an iTunes playlist and start marrying those things. And there's there's a lot of value in that, and that I think definitely is probably very helpful in the edit suite. But there is a tendency among filmmakers to kind of use music as a sort of a, a crutch to lean on a little bit. And so that inevitably has kind of led to saturation of of film by music and the presence of music has sort of become yeah omnipresent like if you if you sort of if you listen to any film from 30 years ago even even more recent than that uh, it tends to be just a, the the sheer kind of quantity of music tends to be a lot less which is you know on one level you can say okay well that, that's a creative choice but i think if you actually investigate that and dive look under the hood a little bit there's also very clear sort of technological reasons for why that those choices occurred and so i guess my feeling is that you know particularly in a sort of maybe uh, you know a hollywood kind of context the filmmaking there is a, a sort of a a language that's been developed in recent years, which is that, you know, if it doesn't have music, then it's not exciting, it's not moving, it's not fast enough, it's not animated enough. Somehow, by contrast, my interest definitely lean more sort of European cinema. You know, maybe my favorite film of last year had no music at all. But what was it? Uh, Justin, Justine Triet's Anatomy and the Fall, three pieces of piano music performed by one of the actors in, in the, in the film, I didn't miss a score at all. So it's, it's definitely not a, it's not a universal thing, but it is a, I find it fascinating that kind of quite often found myself to be the person in the room who is both responsible for music, but also fighting for its absence. My understanding is that you also like to use the score to allude to plot developments that might happen later or to glue different parts of a plot together. How exactly would you go about doing that? Is it just like a motif? I mean, in, in something like, like Dark, um, where you have this incredibly complex sort of multi-layered storytelling where the lines that are sort of being drawn through the, the narrative are not all the information is being revealed at once, you know, and as the complexity of the show grew, 
the layers of you know family connections and things sort of you know became sort of exponential. I really felt strongly that my role in that was to sort of maybe underpin some of that complexity with a with something that people could sort of lean on a little bit emotional. And I really have the feeling at this point in time that I'm very grateful that the people like that music so much, but I think there is a part of the reason that it resonates so strongly with with the fans of the show has been that maybe people have felt that they can sort of trust the music in a strange way, like maybe where other elements of the storytelling are sort of playing with you and toying with you. And, and then, the, then that's mm-hmm. what's kind of fascinating about the story. It's telling you where you are and telling you who you're, who you're talking to or who you're, who you're listening to. I mean, my favorite composer was always Bernard Herrmann. And I feel like he was very good at that in some of his late motifs, you know, making, making music for a character and, and allowing that music to evolve as the character evolves, but sort of always pulling you back into the right pocket. Well, I, I wanted to ask you about that. Just, we don't have many composers <laughs> come on the exchange. I just, I find it so fascinating because it's honestly like an area that I would aspire to be in at one point. But what is your strategy when you sit down to compose a score? Because it seems like such an incredibly overwhelming task. I mean, do you first think, okay, I'm going to come up with the recurring motif for this? Or do you think in terms of, okay, I'm going to come up with a sound for this character? Or in your mind, how did these pieces start coming together? Look, I can only speak for myself. Like working in that role, it would be sort of dishonest to suggest that I knew what I was doing when I was doing it. It's very easy now to sort of look back and say, okay, yeah, that was clearly like the scene for whatever. But actually, that's not how it works. I've always really enjoyed the idea that music has a production role in film as opposed to a post-production role in that I really enjoyed getting in early, getting in before they're shooting, you know, getting in and having those early conversations about what it means, what it feels like, what do you want it to look like? What's the color of this thing? You know, like what are the costumes of like, what are the sets that like, what, you know, who are these people, you know, seeing the actors' faces and knowing, knowing what all that is and then absorbing it and then just forgetting about it and walking away and then trying to just write music for however long I made. Um, and then just trying to build like a, a world of music, maybe, it's easy to sort of think about it as a as an album, if you like. And then I sort of hand that over to the filmmakers and say, like, this is what I'm this is what I'm thinking about. You know, like this is this is what I kind of imagine this feels like. And then one thing I did was was with Doc um specifically was to very deliberately title things in a vague way. So I never delivered anything that was like Jonas's theme or that like I never said to them, this is what this is. I have always left open the possibility that they could listen to it and they could respond to it in a way that maybe I didn't see coming because then there's the possibility that like it comes back at me in a different way, you know, and, and most of my favorite film music, I think, over the years has has been where there is this feeling that the music and the image haven't really ever talked to one another until the moment they're like in the same room. Does that make sense? Yeah, they sort of get squashed together. It reminds me a bit of an interview I saw Hans Zimmer give where he said when Christopher Nolan gave him the brief for Interstellar, he didn't tell him anything about it being a space story. He said it was a story about a man's relationship with his daughter. And so Hans Zimmer came up with this like very kind of somewhat simple, like three note motif that became the, that is the score, like the main score of Interstellar. It's not like some big epics, you know, space thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I know that story as well, and, and I, it resonates with me for sure. Because I think, yeah, the, what, a, what a thing looks like and what a thing feels like aren't necessarily the same idea. And within music, you know, working, particularly, I suppose, working in 
in a way where I have a, definitely an attraction to pretty extreme kinds of sound, but that's working on a, the way it works on your ears and the way it works on your heart can be very uh, different, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, the, the, the kind of the space between those things is, is really where the, the drama is, I think. And I would sort of make the argument that the, the further apart you can pull those things in direction from one another, the bigger the space between them, the bigger the void, and then the bigger the sort of, um, the bigger the potential to kind of put yourself into whatever that is that you're feeling. Um, you bring yourself into it as a listener or as an audience. The payoff is, is bigger. Do you have any like dream directors who you would want to <laughs> write scores for? Oh, the list would be very long, I think, yeah. but um, inevitably the more sort of single-minded, strange the idea, the, the more sort of appeals to me. Yeah, and a lot of my favorite directors tend to be, tend to be Europeans. Yeah, I mean, I, I love Koreans and love to, to work there at some point. I mean, a lot of my favorite directors tend to be women. Yeah, so it's, it's a weird coincidence. There's definitely something in that. Well, I'm excited to see what, who you end up working with next. I wanted to return to something you said about being attracted to extreme sounds because you've notoriously traveled to some very extreme locations to capture field recordings. Um, you went to parts of the Amazon rainforest in Brazil. You went to some active volcanoes in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Why do this when you could theoretically download a trove of recorded sounds online, which I know is not, it's not the same thing, but these are pretty intense places to travel to, so. Well, for, I mean, firstly, the context of a lot of that is that I work with pretty extensively with a visual artist called Richard Montz. You know, I've had a relationship now for more than 10 years working with him on projects, you know, his, his film projects, which it manifests as these sort of large-scale, multi-channel sound video installations. So sort of, you know, non-linear filmmaking in a way like using all of the production qualities of, of a feature film, but to a different end, I suppose. And so, you know, in the context of, of those projects, you know, I, I spent quite a bit of time in the Democratic Republic of Congo. That was a long time ago now. For a few years there, 2013 through 2015, we were documenting various aspects of the migrant crisis in Southern Europe, in the Middle East, I embedded with the U.S. Navy on an oh, aircraft wow. carrier in the Persia Gulf whilst they were bombing ISIS positions in, in Syria. That was, you know, sonically, obviously, like a really in, intense environment, very s- strange to be a part of. But, you know, the, the physicality of the sound world there is, is pretty, pretty well like nothing else on Earth. Yeah, and then, you know, this, this most recent project, Broken Spectre, like working... Uh, documenting various aspects of environmental crime that occurred during the Bolsonaro regime in, in Brazil. Traveling through the, the Amazon, up and down the Trans-Amazonica with Richards, documenting various aspects of that thing. So that included, you know, working with like a lot of recordings of, of, of fire, illegal logging, illegal gold mining, the most interesting part of that project for me was sort of after the discovery of, you know, learning that the biomass of the Amazon estimated that 90% of the, the biomass, the, the animal biomass of the Amazon is, is insect life and to a lesser extent bats, both of which are largely unseen, you know, when you're, when you're there, they're either nocturnal or tiny and invisible. But using something called an ultrasonic microphone, which is a microphone designed ostensibly for scientific research of these animal communities. And then also beyond that, the, the performative aspect of recording, I think, you know, coming out of COVID, like coming, going through that whole period, I found it as a, as a performer, as a performing artist, I found it like a, it was a difficult period because it, it felt like my, my arms had been cut off, not being able to, to go out and play live shows. And, and, and so I think in some ways 
that project and then also the the field recording projects of the the volcano recordings that I did in Iceland getting in that period sort of filled a bit of a hole in a way mm-hmm. to sort of to work without without being able to work. Like reconnecting with the practice. Yeah. And and it is a really physical process as well. I think that's that's something that really doesn't come across, you know, like when you when you talk about someone like Chris Watson, you know, the there was a real physicality to that work. I mean, I, I'm just kind of, you know, dipping my toe in, into that into that world. But you know, the guys who do this for a living, I mean, it's 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 serious work. Yeah. It's, it's no joke. Beyond your solo work and your scoring work and your field recording work, you've also written two operas: mm-hmm. <laughs> um, The Wasp Factory in 2013 and The Murder of Hallett. Yazgat in 2020. Can you tell me a little bit about both of those and what drew you to opera? It's slightly unfortunate that I think for a younger audience, the opera seems from the outside to be a sort of a, a museum, something where we relive the past. Yeah, there tends to be a sort of a, a celebration of ideas that come from, you know, uh, a period of history that I think a lot of people find hard to connect with, myself included. But it's a shame because the the actual structure of the opera, the literal structure of it, the way the machine of opera works, is one of the few places on earth, maybe the only place on earth, that really revolves around music, like truly revolves around music. You know, the storytelling through music. It stands on its own. It's not a. It's not a soundtrack for dads. So that's. It's not. It's not there to fill the needs of the song. It's. It's telling stories with music and the entire sort of apparatus of the opera house itself is there to embolden music. You know the way it sounds, the way it looks, the way you know the thing is presented, costume design set design, the whole thing revolves around the orchestra and around the needs of the singers. In that regard, it's a dream space to work in because all of a sudden, all of the ideas that are swimming around in my head, they're, they're able to be kind of, you know, brought to life, literally, on stage. And so with a, with a piece like The Murder of Elite Scout, which is based on a, not on a classical story, but is actually based on a forensic investigation of uh, the murder of a Turkish man um, by neo-Nazis in Germany. It's a contemporary story. Unfortunately, it's all too relevant, especially now. And the, the culpability of a secret service agent or the culpability of the German government in kind of facilitating um, or at least not helping the that kind of crime to occur so like being able to kind of take the i worked with a the a research agency forensic architecture based in london and so the the investigation is 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 done by that it's a counter investigation is what they call it where they're sort of taking all the facts of the case taking all the data all of the you know cell phone recordings uh, geo location data um phone locks you know the, the whole thing and sort of coalescing it into a into a report and so the the opera is based on all of those facts and the the underlying crux of that case was the idea that there was this this man this uh, off-duty police officer the secret service agent who was in an internet cafe at exactly the time that this man was assassinated and he claimed not to have heard the gunshot not to have seen the body you know, to read about that in the newspaper or to see that on television is one thing. But to put an actor on the stage being that mad and to put a speaker on stage in exactly the position of the murderer. And we, you know, we made like sort of forensically accurate recreations of the gunshot through that speaker into an acoustic space in the opera house on the stage. And so when you're in that theater and I can show you 
what that gunshot sounds like, like literally what it sounded like. And you can watch this guy two meters away from that speaker not react. Wow. That storytelling in a way that you can only do in the theater. Yeah. I mean, all of your work is so multi-dimensional. I think sometimes I get lost in DJ world. <laughs> you've also toured with Swans, right? And you've, I mean, you've played with bands. You have so many different musical experiences. I mean, I don't want to say pick one, but like, is there one area that you really feel like passionately about of all the different little things that you have your hands in? Yeah, I suppose really when it comes down to it, like like making music for no reason than just wanting to make music, ultimately that's really where it all probably foils down to for me. Everything kind of spins out from that um, and, you know, manifests itself in one way or another. You know, sometimes it goes away for a while and it did there for a little while. Like it really felt like, okay, maybe, maybe I'm just done this. Mm. But it sort of it came back again and then I was really grateful and sort of happy to feel that feeling of like, okay, I really... I want to make music again. That sounds silly. I mean, it feels like you say, like I'm probably always doing that, but actually not really. I mean, the, I think different aspects of the work I do and the things I'm interested in, I, I end up sort of going down little rabbit holes and, and sort of, you know, focusing on one thing really intensely for a period. But then, you know, the pendulum swings and I end up somewhere else, whether that's touring or, uh, working on an opera production or work, you know, scoring film or, or whatever that might be. But I think ultimately they're all probably just pulling on a source that ultimately is fed by just a, a love of music. Have you always been a musician? Because I understand that you were actually trained formally in visual arts, not music. Yeah, so I, I went to art, art school, like, out of high school and, and kind of thought that's that's what I was going to do. But I was always in bands and stuff through, through school. And I always wanted to play music. I think the way that it sort of, at least for me, sort of manifested as the thing maybe it is now is, is you know, the, the reliance on being in a band when you're a teenager where, you know, somebody gets a real job and gets a girlfriend or whatever and it, it, people tended to want to do other things well then i found myself ending up sort of being like well i still want to do this so you know get a computer then that sort of snowballed into you know making music in computers and then very rapidly it became far more interesting to mess with things inside that world than it was to just record into them as though it was the take machine that started to really push, like the, the playing was a fabric of sound and playing was the sort of uh, physical shape of sound and the way music, the elements within music, the melody and harmony and texture, the way all these things kind of interact. Like I found myself, you know, really feeling very at home in that space, like playing with the toys of a sound engineer, but actually not being interested in the functionality of them as much as the the way that you could make things interact with other things, you know, like to kind of create these organisms where shapes would kind of push and pull against one another. And that really took over, you know, any interest I had in, in being a painter or something because I was sort of doing that. Yeah, well, the way you speak about sound and music, it makes sense that you're you come from a visual art background. Like it almost is like a form of synesthesia, like seeing sounds and textures fit together. And I can hear that in your work mm -hmm. as well as that that's kind of your approach. I mean, but did you, or do you play an instrument as well? Or are you still mostly working within the computer and manipulating sounds that way? I mean, I, I play a few things badly. <laughs> still probably lean on the guitar as a thing to go to. Um, and, and piano, you know, I mean, those were the two instruments I sort of learned. I didn't learn them enough. Sometimes wish I'd learned them better, but I was probably too impatient. So, you know, I, I, I do have instruments that I sort of am drawn to, but I think there is maybe a little 
a slight lack of sort of idolation or respect that I have for particular instruments, which is definitely part of the reason I do the things I do because I, I, there is a lot of hierarchy like in in music and the value of certain things within music that I have problems with, you know, particularly in regards to orchestral music. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a there's a financial aspect to that. It, you know, you work with an orchestra, it's really expensive. All the things they're playing are really expensive and therefore they're somehow of more value than the, you know, thing that you recorded on the Tascam recorder and, you know, with the focus right, you know, <laughs> thing that you bought at guitar center or whatever. Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. It sort of creates this strange um, sort of economy of scale that affects the way we, we think about the, the value of music. Um, and I, you know, I, I think I sort of reject that and, and always kind of have, um, not in a really conscious way, but just like, I find this just as interesting as that. And so, and the way that those things kind of pull against one another and not allowing one to compromise the other, but to actually find, I think the, the you know, in, in its best moments, the thing my music does well is, is that it, it kind of creates a space where things that maybe don't, you know, belong together can exist and not be compromised by one another. And the further you can pry apart the space between those things, there is a, there's an open, like a, a, a sort of void forms between them that, you know, that's where, that's where the listening experience is, you know, for, for me. That that's like the unknown bit in between. I mean, in terms of putting together things that one would think wouldn't fit, I mean, you pull very seamlessly from black metal and classical and minimalism and punk. And I mean, I think in my mind, those are things that just like would not <laughs> work, but you seem to have just made them into your own unique sound that really does does work, yeah. Do you have any kind of regular creative practice or like a daily music making practice? Look, I, I think, you know, previously I would have said, yeah, you know, I always go into the studio, trying to make things all the time, be a hard worker. The longer you spend on something, the better it's going to be. And, and I think there's, there's aspects of that that ring true for me still. But I, I think actually at this point in time, my I do recognize the idea that in order to kind of make the thing that really fucking flaps, it like sometimes does require lying on the sofa, eating cereal, watching yeah. Frasier for three days, you know, <laughs> like, and, and I'm, I'm, I recognize that in myself, like more now, I think it's, it's pretty important to kind of recognize when the battery is empty, you know? Yeah. From experience, I, I know that rest and reflection is really important instead of just like banging your head against a wall <laughs> sometimes. So what are you working on now? Like what direction do you see yourself going? Yeah, no, I, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a few things hovering in the air. Some of those things might happen, some of them won't, un- undoubtedly. I mean, the film thing is always like, it's a funny world that... I really try and keep a, a, a bit of an emotional distance from that because I find that, you know, as soon as I'm talking about a, a project in that space, that it inevitably sort of gets, it, it takes up a little slice of my brain, you know, and then when it falls apart or, or takes too long or something, it's sort of in hard drive space that I could have otherwise used. So I don't know if that makes sense to anyone but me, but... I think the thing I'm I'm kind of most excited about right now is is kind of actually more in a, a space in which music and sound are sort of existing in a physical space that is not time based and not performance based. So that is you know sort of in installation work, I suppose, is the best way to describe it working with physical speakers, working with, yeah, the 
physicality of rooms and, and you know, and, and something more sculptural. So that's something that can be navigated around, thing that can be touched and sort of has a, yeah, has a spatial sort of physicality to it. That's definitely where my interests are at the moment. And I think that it's kind of an exciting time for that because I think also technologically things have kind of now finally at a point where the kinds of conversations I want to have about, you know, how sound interacts with the space and with an audience, you know, like I think a, a lot of sort of like early interactive stuff was felt clunky and sort of really scripted, you know, but now it feels to me like there's a, there's a, there's a way that I can, I can see myself kind of working more in that, in that realm because it, Technologically, we're we're in a really exciting place with you know with music software and and, and with that, with AI as well mm-hmm. that we're sort of making things that it's sort of you you building up the beginnings of an ecosystem, but you're not defining the exact way in which they behave. And that for me is like a it's a really interesting space where we. Well, I hope that I get to catch your next show wherever <laughs> that happens. And I, yeah, I really wish I made it on Friday. So your new album leans a lot more into your influences from black metal, I think, than a lot of your other work. So what drew you to this sound right now? The thing with that record is it, it feels in many ways like maybe a reaction to, to film music in a way. I'd spent a lot of time since the last record kind of really pretty immersed in that field. And there's a, there's a seductive element to, you know, writing to somebody else's narrative. It makes things easier and it is a, it, it becomes kind of, it becomes an easier way to work. And so, you know, and then with uh, the pandemic, I sort of like every other artist I am sort of tried to really embrace this idea that, okay, this is, you know, this is the, all this free time and, you know, and then use it to get back to work and, you know, but I, I really struggled through that period. I know, I know some people had a, had a, a great time like it, but I, I struggled with it because it sort of, it really felt like I was, was sort of handicapped and I couldn't do things the way I'd, I'd done them previously. Like a lot of my work is, is done, you know, in transit for whatever reason that's, it's always worked pretty well for me. So, yeah, I got stuck at home and, and, and a lot of the music that I wrote during that period felt and sounded to me like music that I wrote in my pajamas because that's what I did. And I kind of came out the end of that and I just couldn't connect with it anymore because it felt like, it felt like, first of all, it felt like music that was connected to a period that I really didn't want to like extend beyond that moment. But also it felt like music that was really an attempt at sort of like detoxing this like huge period of, you know, film work. And so I came out the other side of that and, and just, I had this feeling that I just, I wanted to lean more into a kind of music that, yeah, was, was really pulling on sort of this angular, complicated sort of mathematical polyrhythmic sort of world of progressive metal. And so I started talking with, with Greg Kubaki. Um, from Carbon, it's, it's an incredible band, which everybody should listen to. And I really just, I wanted to get inside that music and start kind of working out how to how to work with it. And so, you know, we got together in the studio in Berlin and, and all of a sudden I had, I had this human in front of me that could really kind of bring that world to mind. And, and, and we just started playing around with it. But at the same time, metal has a, like, like any genre, but metal specifically has a, a lot of baggage as well. There's a lot of aspects of that thing that I kind of wanted to push past and, and, and just kind of get it down to the sort of the essence of the thing that excites me about it, which is, which is all the, the sort of the angles and, and the, the machinery of it kind of way. But at the same time, I didn't, I wanted to stay in it for longer. And there's a, there's a really ephemeral, sort of fleeting, almost, um, it's like a lot of that music feels like it's, it's racing against itself. Like it's, it's so fast yeah. and, and brief, you know, a lot of these songs are two minute from or something. I, I just want to sit at it. That to me speaks more to an idea of 
a, yeah, sort of a, a different kind of minimalism. Like, I think previously I, I, I would have said, you know, East Coast, Steve Rash, Clay Branca, Reese Chatham. But I think in, in recent years, my, my ear has definitely lent more West, um, you know, Terry Riley, Alice Coltrane, incredible music there. But again, you know, we're talking about baggage, just like there's also this sort of Indian mysticism thing that's kind of connected to that as well, which doesn't feel true to me. And so I think I was looking for a way, maybe somehow to, to again, the, the, the way something sounds and the way something feels are not necessarily the same idea. And so trying to, trying to make a, a kind of me- maybe meditative space that would, you know, because I think sometimes the way that people perceive my work is, is, is they hear what it sounds like and then make a uh, decision about what it feels like because of the way it sounds. And so I think one of the ways I wanted to address that was to sort of, if, if, if you stay in it with me, the way you're perceiving this sound is going to change by being exposed to it for longer. There's a way that can kind of perceive it differently. And that which sort of feels aggressive, like gives way to something even sort of transcendental in a way. What is one great lesson you've learned from your career? And it can be a personal insight or it can be a professional one. There, there is an idea that, that, that over-specialization is what killed the dinosaurs, right? So that speaks to me, has always kind of spoken to me as this idea that, that just doing one thing and, and just identifying yourself as one thing feels like a really easy way to, to have a rough time, you know? And, and I, saw, I saw that with, you know, as I'm sure you did during COVID, those friends who are DJs, amazing DJs, like in a world where there's no COVID, that was fine, you know? But as soon as the asteroid hit and you couldn't play in a club anymore, that's a dangerous place to be, you know? And so I, I, I suppose, yeah, maybe one, one thing that was very clear to me as a result of that, you know, cataclysmic event was that those who were are kind of working in different ways simultaneously and, and being open to collaboration, being open to like what comes in from the, the world, even if it doesn't fit this narrow band of, you know, interest or whatever, that, that like, that's actually a really healthy way to be. And so I think I've always tried to sort of always be open to different ways of, of working and different people and always try, always trying to keep collaborating, even though it's, you know, sometimes it's really hard and it seems, it seems often very, it's a much easier thing to just work on my own. The challenge of being often, I think, is to, is to keep reaching out to other humans and to keep kind of pulling more people into your sphere and more influence and, and just keeping curious. That's a great note to end on. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this RE Exchange with Ben Frost. The track playing in the outro of this episode is Turning the Prism from his album Scope Neglect. It's out on Mute Records tomorrow, March 1st. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the RA Exchange wherever you listen to podcasts and listen to our full archive of conversations on ra.co or on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. Until next time, take care. <laughs>